Hi, I'm Jordan Sorokin. And I'm Ada Yi. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Zoya Farzampour, a rising fifth-year neuroscience graduate student in John Huguenard's lab. Thank you for joining us today, Zoya. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Zoya, we have here the makings of your favorite drink, which is whiskey on the rocks. So can you share with us how you make it? It sounds very complicated. It's so complicated. <laughs> um, you might want to take notes. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, I forgot my lab notes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually pre-made these awesome, gigantic yeah, these are, ice these spheres. And the great thing about having ice spheres for whiskey, if you like your whiskey on the rocks, yeah. um, is like that they the melt slower. Oh, really? Yeah, so they melt slower, one. And also, if you don't like your whiskey watered down, which mm-hmm. is great for really delicious whiskeys like this one, mm-hmm. Red Breast Whiskey, um, you get less water with less melting. Mm. And so then you just drop your ice sphere in and pour in your whiskey as much as you please. That was a lot. Um, was it a lot or was it just <laughs> the right Just the right <laughs> And then swirl... And drink. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. that's probably one of the best whiskeys I've had. Yeah, it's really, really good. I like it a lot. I'm. Uh, we were talking about this a little earlier, but um, Red Breast is probably one of my favorite whiskeys. I love tequila as well, mm-hmm. but um, if I'm going to sip on something, uh-huh. I'm going to sip on whis- whis- mm-hmm. whiskey. I'll wh- take tequila shots or tequila drinks. When did you um, first try this whiskey? Um, probably about a year ago. I just randomly was at a restaurant, and people are constantly surprised when a young lady is <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, some whiskey on the rocks. Or occasionally, if it's a really good whiskey and it's already cold outside, I'll have it neat. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been warm during the summer, so yeah, I like colder drinks yeah. on the so. rocks. It's good. Um, and I tried it, and since then, it's been my favorite go-to. You don't always get it a lot of places, right. but um, so I keep a little bottle at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, a, just a little bottle? That doesn't look like a little, a little bottle. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good bottle. You guys yeah. are from the same lab, the Huguenard Lab at Stanford. Do you, I hear you guys have, do you guys have whiskey nights or tequila nights or Wait, something? Wait, what? We this know? is a thing? <laughs> so everyone has, um, I don't know, <laughs> this is full disclosure, um, everyone has their own uh, kind of, I guess liquor at their desks. Wait, I, there's I don't, yeah. there's whiskey people. There's tequila people. I there's see. gin people. Gin. Or used to be gin people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there's just your pure. So at my, at my desk, uh-huh. I have. Um, well, now I have. I'll be having this whiskey because I brought it from <laughs> home, and I'll be keeping it at my desk now. Um, <laughs> I keep Bailey's in the fridge because mm-hmm. that's always good to celebrate yeah. a good experiment with. And <laughs> Next to the ACSF. Zoe and I like to have coffee and Bailey's occasionally. Yeah, you know, that you're tired at the end of the day, but you're also super excited. And then she- <laughs> <laughs> these, these are all in, in, in kitchen area, nowhere near lab stuff. Just Right. It's totally by the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Zoya, um, how did you first get into like the Huguenard research like what what was your first like entry into this type of research originally in my undergrad I was pre-med and I was volunteering at a hospital for a lot of time and I I had taken some undergrad classes and I really liked um my neurobiology class so I was like oh you know going like 
neurology is probably where I want to go. And I was just really disheartened with as little as we know about the brain, we don't offer that much as far as therapeutics for people with brain disorders or brain diseases. And I just kind of felt a little helpless and helpless for these people. And I thought there has to be something that can be done. There has to be something to make this platform for doctors to do things actually for these people better. And research seemed the obvious choice and the only only way to go. And so I, from there, my, actually it was during this neurobiology class, during this volunteering at a local hospital, that I was introduced into to the director of um, a research program at uh, University of Texas San Antonio mm-hmm. where I went. And he encouraged me to apply for... Uh, for a position in this program and I did and then from there I fell in love with the scientific process and Mm -hmm. doing research and I am a super inquisitive person as it is so being able to spend my life going Mm -hmm. after asking questions and constantly Mm -hmm. learning I couldn't imagine (laughs) (laughs) right a better field is there is there a particular disease that you were interested in at that time or not well so I slowly developed becoming really interested in this mm-hmm. disease this random disease it's called mm-hmm. Batten's disease and it's a neuronoceroid lipofusinosis disorder never say those things too fast especially yeah. when we're so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a neurodegenerative disorder so the brain usually systems that usually take out sort of cellular waste weren't working in place. And so that cellular waste accumulates and you have a lot of cellular death, apoptosis, and that causes, yeah. yeah. But so, why battens in particular? Um, I had started just looking into research articles. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was actually a patient whose child, it's, really, it's, it's actually really sad because mm-hmm. children are born with the disease and then... Um, there you can't tell it's not something that's that happens very often so they don't screen for it Mm -hmm. but around six or seven years old they start Mm -hmm. showing signs of um neurodegeneration and then that's really interesting because at such a young age yeah because neurodegeneration is something we think of as older yeah and so usually around 10 or 11 it starts Mm -hmm. becoming fatal so it happens really quickly but um and they show all the same kind of things as like an alzheimer's patient same kind of symptoms same kind of symptoms i mean they but it's it's quicker and it gets it progresses much faster. Much faster. Oh, so see. they start losing normal like motor function mm-hmm. and become blind mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. up to the point where they're just completely bedridden and and they have genetic basis for this disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that makes it interesting. Yeah. And so did you get to work on this or did you end up working on something? No, else? never. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> but it was just it was so striking <laughs> to me how I mean so this was a genetic mutation how one mutation could completely alter take away someone's life almost mm-hmm. and i figured there has to be a way to fix this like it right. seems if so you know simple the there's one mutation <laughs> right what are these people doing <laughs> i'm gonna get in there um and it kind of just inspired me but from there you know uh i joined a lab and uh-huh. they were focused um in the hippocampus and it was a computational lab and so i kind of just followed the research within that lab and mm-hmm. It's kind of been that way from forward. I don't think I was ever one to restrict it, strict, restrict what I decided to look into based upon what I thought I wanted. I kind of followed mm-hmm. the research that came up with me, and then mm-hmm. it's really easy for me to get interested in things and mm-hmm. um, want to dig deeper. I see. Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned a program that you were... Yeah, so I was actually in two, and both of these, one was MBRS, it's um, Minority Biomedical Research, uh, what was the S S for? 
Science. No, it wasn't. It's not science. It was something about pathways. Success. 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. And the second part is RISE, and it's research initiative for um, science education. These are, are these, so these are two separate programs you applied for, or they're No, related? so this was one combined for undergraduate for undergraduate, promising undergraduates, you know, you, you had to apply for it. You had to have a good GPA. You had to have good references who wanted to explore a career in research but didn't really have tools to do so, either financially or didn't have people in their lives to kind of tell them what you need to get into um, a doctoral degree program. And so before I joined this program, even though I was interested in doing research for the reasons I said, I had no idea what you needed to do right. to get there. Like, right. what do you need when you graduate <laughs> to, to get into I, a PJ, I, yeah. PhD program? And yeah, it's no so much. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know there were. I didn't know science conferences even existed. existed. <laughs> I just had this idea of people running gels, and I remember I would be like, like "I want to go to graduate school." And, I, and in my mind, this meant like I was gonna like do maybe gels. one or two years. Yeah, run gels. Yeah. yeah. And professionally. <laughs> I didn't even know you had to prepare. I thought it was just something that you just apply for. Like, yeah. like I mean, of course, you want to do extracurricular things to make yourself a, a better candidate for medical school. Mm -hmm. But there's no direct thing like, oh, if you do these things, then mm -hmm. you're going to be a better candidate, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And with uh, science and research mm -hmm. and graduate mm -hmm. programs, there's definitely a lot of things that you can do yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or should do to yeah. be able to start your graduate research at the appropriate level. Mm -hmm. And uh, this program helped me learn all this. So I started in BRS Rise, which helped put you in a lab. And um, they did things, even career development seminars and training and classes and courses and um, encouraged you to go to scientific meetings, paid for those meetings. Mm. And so you can present your work there that you did in the All lab. of this as an undergrad. All of this is an undergrad. <laughs> yeah. And then. Sounds um, pretty amazing as a Yeah. Program. No, it, it was great. I mean, there was even workshops on writing, you know, grants. Uh, doctoral grants mm. for the future and um, a lot of networking activities. Mm -hmm. And so through that. Uh, that's why I got here. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I was able to really build my CV when, mm -hmm. and if I hadn't been there, I didn't, I wouldn't have known what a CV was. Yeah. But so, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> um, and yeah. so it was really great. The se the second program, which was related, they're essentially the same thing: taking disadvantage or people who don't have access to the tools required and giving them those tools and training. It was a uh, mark. U star and that's minority access to research careers mm -hmm. a little bit easier um <laughs> and that one required you to write an honors thesis on top of doing all of those other things and so that one was a little bit nicer and that prepares you at another level right for graduate school where you'll be writing qualifying exams and mm -hmm. also another thesis hopefully mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 so have you kept in touch with the labs that you worked with the undergrad yeah so i started in dr jaffe's lab at utsa and i was more of a computational uh lab he worked in the hippocampus looking at dendritic uh, signal processing. Mm -hmm. And the second lab I worked in was actually during a summer internship, which they also encourage and give you access to how to apply to these summer programs. So um, for the summer, I traveled to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, and worked in Meyer Jackson's lab. And he specializes in um, synaptic transmission, specifically calcium, uh, calcium dependent exocytosis and fusion pore. So when a neuron is excited, it releases neurotransmitters through these vesicles and when it, the way that it releases those neurotransmitters is they bind or fuse to the 
synaptic membrane, and there's a little pore that opens that makes the aqueous environment inside of the vesicle and that on the extracellular solution um, continuous, and that's how the neurotransmitter spills out, binds to receptors on the postsynaptic membrane, and excites the secondary cell. Right, and this is all thought of as your classical calcium-dependent mm -hmm. exocytosis. And by vesicle, you just mean that this neuron releases this little... Like packet pa of, of chemicals that, yeah, that right. stimulates little, the next neuron, yeah. right? right? Right. And so that, that packet being released through the membrane creates this pore or channel. I was actually recording from neurons, and they had a clever experiment where they made point mutations in one of the proteins that sought to line this pore and um, looked at the glutamatergic signalings, which is thought to be excitatory. And so um, glutamate is negatively charged. So this and is the, glutamate is the transmitter, basically right, the yeah. signal that's packaged in these little vesicles. Exactly. Right? So it's the little chemical that's being leaked out of these um, vesicles when it mm -hmm. fuses to the membrane. And uh, this fusion pore is the channel in which it flows through to get out. And so... There is research still ongoing, actually, about all of the proteins involved in making this pore, allowing the neurotransmitters to flow through. And, and so, why do you need proteins to make that pore? Like, is it difficult to make the pore? Right. So the vesicles are made with a, a bilipid layer, just as the membrane. Mm -hmm. And it's not energetically favorable to fuse and then pull apart the membrane in order to let the solution through. Mm -hmm. So you need some sort of work there. And that's what the proteins do is they do the work of tethering together and pulling apart mm -hmm. the membrane mm -hmm. to allow the neurotransmitter. Because it seems like a simple out. process for these like little bubbles full yeah, of the just neurotransmitter boop, just boop, 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 <laughs> spit, spit stuff out. But it's actually a difficult process and you need lots of help. Yeah. So it must exactly. be an energetically costly thing for the cell then, right? Exactly. So the proteins right. are our yeah. little workers. <laughs> and they uh, open it up and let our neurotransmitter out. And so there was a lot of debate on which proteins were involved. And um, particularly, uh, we know of snare proteins. There are snare proteins on the vesicle, which is the little packet part. There's mm -hmm. uh, snare proteins on the membrane. And two snare proteins that are thought of to help form the membrane are synaptobrevin, which is on the vesicle, but on the membrane, there's syntaxin. And um, to determine if syntaxin truly was making up the fusion pore, what they can do is they can make these point mutations on the protein that are charged. And so if you have, they're thought to li line the fusion pore, and so if you have a neurotransmitter like glutamate that is negatively charged, if you add another charge that's similar, it'll repel that charge. So mm -hmm. it would reduce the flux of neurotransmitter through that pore. Oh, that's cute. And if you change it to a positively charged, um, like something at, like arginine, so the two mutations they use were aspartate and arginine. They're very similar structurally, mm -hmm. except for arginine has an amine terminus that is... Mm -hmm positively charged. So then you would expect that it would attract the glutamate neurotransmitter, then increasing the rate of flux through that fusion pore. And you can measure that with the postsynaptic response. So the receptors that those neurons bind to will give you... And how, you can how, measure, how do you measure that? So we actually use these glass electrodes no. <laughs> that we impale the neurons. <laughs> and um, they use a technique, it's, it's kind of complicated, but to gloss over the details, simply we record the electrical activity from the postsynaptic cell, mm -hmm. which reflects both in amplitude and like magnitude and kinetics, what's happening with the neurotransmitter being released from the presynaptic cell. So you can record basically the 
the volt, the electrical properties of the cell. Correct. Close enough to wait, right? Yeah. Yes. Whether so or not basically the, the the second cell is getting the message from the first. Right, and yeah. e even in, in to such a small level. So I recorded things called miniature excitatory postsynaptic potentials. Mm -hmm. So it's thought that these are events from a single a single fusion events mm -hmm. event of a single vesicle. So therefore, a single fusion pore. Mm -hmm. And um, that way we can really determine how a single fusion pore is being affected with each of these mutations. And these are really tiny pores, right? Like, yeah. do, like do we know the diameter? I don't even know. Oh, do is it a nanometer? <laughs> <laughs> it, it must be It small. would have to be in the... Because it, a cell yeah, is like 10 microns. 10 microns, yeah. <laughs> and like so the synapse is only like a micron. Even smaller. I used to yeah. know this. It's been about five or six years. So. <laughs> Those sound like very delicate experiments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, that was actually my first actual hands-on where I learned to patch clamp and mm -hmm. where I learned to do electrophysiology mm -hmm. and I kind of got hooked there. And, <laughs> and this was in contrast because at the same time, so what do you mean computational? And so in the other lab, yeah, you're yeah. doing computational neuroscience while you're doing experiments in this lab. So what yeah. was the what was the flip side? What was computational neuroscience? For those right, right. Know? So I used a program called Neuron. Mm -hmm. um, it's a modeling program to m model how, um, I guess, how electrical activity travels down these processes from the neurons. Mm -hmm. And um, my PI actually was doing the patching. So we mm -hmm. wanted to try to figure out how cells could take information and transfer it from one point in the, in, within the dendrites of the cell to mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. so efficiently because it didn't make sense how they were doing it when we recorded it electrophysiologically. Mm -hmm. Um, when we use the current models. Mm -hmm. And so um, we did things like I actually retraced. You, you can record from a neuron and mm -hmm. fill it actually with this substance that will let you, it's called biocytin, and mm -hmm. it'll let you later stain for that. And you can get this very clear image of what the neuron looks like. And you can rebuild that digitally and then include that in your computation of how mm -hmm. signals transfer through that particular Say, morphology. Say differences in structures of neurons within the hippocampus could alter their ability to process information. And all in a computer. This is all all in a computer. Fun. And so um, I think that it was, it was pretty cool being able to model a lot of things, the way that we were able to model things, the extent you are. But when I went to Meyer's lab and I could actually see these beautiful biological systems working at like the molecular level in real time i just never looked back mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you would ever incorporate computational in the future or is it just not up your alley um i think that so i only did i only worked on that project for a little under a year mm -hmm. so i would collaborate and I, i'm glad i did it because i do feel more confident in reading computational papers and um, if in the future I did have a collaboration in which computational neuroscience would uh, contribute to whatever study I was doing, I would definitely work with somebody who was way better than I am, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> who is an ex is, expert in the area. Which is what we all do. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that I personally would ever go to enhancing my skills at the level I have gone to with Physiology. You wouldn't spend mm -hmm. more time on, or I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is what you're doing now in, in John Huynard's lab, is it somewhat related or have you switched gears completely from your undergrad work? 
Oh, um, I have switched gears completely. No, <laughs> I still do electrophysiology, mm-hmm. but I ask different types of questions. So um, I actually still record minis, mm-hmm. different kinds. These are inhibitory instead of excitatory, so different ion channels. But um, so I still incorporate a lot of what I learned. And John's lab is really a great physiology lab because it does span everything from the type of experiments I was doing where you're looking at right single vesicle fusion and looking at questions from single synapses all the way to network activity. So I still am brought back to some of even and, and modeling. So his lab also he right does, does do a lot of model. modeling. Mm-hmm. So in some way, all of what I've done in the past is is incorporated in one lab. Yeah. Yeah. Although I don't do all of the aspects myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I saw that you recently submitted a paper. Congratulations, by oh. the way. Um, Thank you. About the role of different cells in the brain called astrocytes. Um, and these are, for people who don't know, they're a certain type of cell that aren't neurons, but they're uh, necessary for neuronal health and they kind of play a role in keeping the brain healthy and functional. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what this project was? And Yeah, actually, this was, um, so Hiro Tani is, was a postdoc in the lab, and um, he spearheaded this project, and I, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, be a part of it. And so astrocytes have kind of, I mean, I think maybe the past five to ten years, they've been getting a lot more and more light. Previous really, really old school textbooks will still refer to them as, right, the supportive, the supportive cells, cells of the yeah, brain. The neurons are the electrically excitable cells of the brain and therefore the most important Mm -hmm. (laughs) coming from very old school electrophysiologists. A a human analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Astrocytes are the housewives of the brain. That's so old. (laughs) (laughs) Although a lot of, a lot, so a lot of old school electrophysiologists or their wives are still the housewives. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's both are still kind of, um, fluid in their minds, but, um, more and more has come to light that astrocytes play a critical role, if not equally as important um, role in synaptic transmission. So there's this idea of the tripartite synapse, right? So that it's not just a a presynaptic neuron and a postsynaptic neuron, but also an astrocyte in combination of this concerted activity for synaptic activity um, altogether, that they all equally contribute. Mm -hmm. And so... um, with that, the old school view is that astrocytes in their supportive role helped neurotransmitter recycling through the glutamate-glutamine cycle. And what that is is um, glutamate, as I talked a little bit about before, is an excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain released by one neuron, excites another, and that signal can be propagated down. And um, When neurons release at glutamate, astrocytes have these excitatory amino transporters that uptake that glutamate, and then they convert glutamate to glutamine, release that into the area, the synaptic, the extrasynaptic space, which by transferring, transforming it from glutamate to glutamine, it's no longer going to bind to those receptors. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much excitation, you can get excitotoxicity, which is bad for your cells. Can you describe that really briefly? What um, it's just constantly activating the cells, which will mm-hmm. <laughs> in a lead to 
some kind of damage. Destabilize yeah. your membrane. So uh, by converting it to glutamine, then you don't have the excitotoxicity and it can then be transferred back into um, neurons through system A or system in transporters and then converted back into glutamate within the neuron so then it won't bind to the receptors outside of the neuron and can be packaged back into these vesicles and then released again. And it's been really, there's beautiful biochemical work on this, looking at where these, there's glutaminase, which converts, right, glutamate to glutamine, and then uh, vice versa, there's other, there's, um, oh, sorry, there's glutamine synthesis, synthetase, which converts glutamate to glutamine, and then there's glutaminase, which converts, right, glutamine the reverse, glutamine to glutamate. And um, <laughs> these are very, they're, they're, they're located in specific compartments, right? So if, if the converter of glutamine to glutamate mm -hmm. is located primarily in neurons, you would imagine mm -hmm. that's where that occurs. Mm -hmm. And if the glutamate to glutamine occurs, mostly the, that enzyme is in astrocytes primarily, you would think mm -hmm. that that mostly occurs in astrocytes. And then with the transporters that are able to move each one in and out, so there's this very nice structurally biochemically characterized glutamate make glutamine cycle but when people have tried doing experiments to prove mm -hmm. that this is important you would think this is important for synaptic transmission which mm -hmm. requires right neurotransmitter release mm -hmm. um they've done stuff where they've blocked the cycle and they still see excitatory amino acid transmission or glutamate glutamatergic neurotransmission occur and so there the the question there's the question of functionally how relevant is the glutamate glutamine cycle on synaptic Wait, transmission. Wait, so you just summarize an entire cycle that people say when they block it, everything is fine. Yeah. Okay. Since, I mean, yeah, there are other sources for glutamate from, for, I mean, it's it's a uh, basic amino acid, mm -hmm. so like the nucleus, uh, but it wouldn't make sense to have, right, these, um, the processes from the nucleus where these, these sites of release, the presynaptic terminals are so far, it wouldn't make sense to have a source that has to travel so far when synaptic activity occurs on such a fast time scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think that some of the contribution is from, right, um, from the cell body. But what's interesting is that if you add, if you deplete glutamate, mm -hmm. you don't really see a large change um, or glutamine or, you know, stop the cycle. But if you enhance the cycle, mm -hmm. you do see amplification of the signal of synaptic transmission. So it is able to modulate at some level. And what Hero found in his previous work is that he was very interested in, in seizure activity. And so seizures essentially are when the brain kind of freaks out electrically. It's like a barrage of electrical activity. And... Um, people who have spontaneous seizures have epilepsy mm -hmm. and it's um what he noticed is that in models where the brain has seizures where electrical activity is constantly using the system putting a lot of uh work putting a lot of weight on the neurotransmitter pool then you do see if you mess up if you mess up the glutamate glutamine cycle that mm -hmm. you do have a reduced the redu reduced ability for the seizure activity okay. to sustain itself because of the reduced excitability right so if you deplete the glutamine or mess up the cycle using some sort of blocker at the transporter level or the enzyme level then this epileptic activity that normally would keep going in um, normal conditions will not go as long so you'll see seizures that are these 
um, electrical waveforms, high spike amplitude, high frequency electrical activity not persist for as long. Mm -hmm. And so that was one idea that maybe this, this is an important factor, but the way that we're looking at it is such we're not using enough of the system. So what we do is actually slice physiology. So mm-hmm. we look at brain slices mm-hmm. that are much no, notoriously much more quiet than mm-hmm. an intact brain because mm-hmm. you're cutting out a lot of the network activity. Mm-hmm. And so what Hiro did was he looked at low frequency activity stimulation of neurons mm-hmm. versus high frequency mm-hmm. activity and found that in the high frequency states, you could see an effect of blocking the glutamate glutamine cycle mm-hmm. and you didn't ever see that in the low frequency. So perhaps hmm. it was just that if you're not really using the system enough, then, it's then you're not, you, you know, those other, those other, there are other mechanisms that can keep replenishing the pool mm-hmm. that are okay on a longer time scale. And um, my role was to see if this was relevant at the level of synapses. So he was looking at local field potentials, which is a combination of mini cells electrical activity when they fire action potentials. And what I wanted to do was ask the question at the level of a synapse, do you see, right? Because that's more specific. If you're looking at several cells, action potentials are a combined activity of the cells. It doesn't have so much to do with, you can't quantify down to like the single synapse, the single Mm -hmm. vesicle. As where, as I talked before, when you record from minis, you can. You can mm-hmm. see, right, at single synapses, you can kind of get more down to very um, discrete mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to see from single synapses, do you mm-hmm. see this uh, dependency on high-frequency, low-frequency stimulation? So, sorry, so before you go on, just yeah. so that I make sure I understand. So in a normal system, we're saying that this recycling system doesn't really do anything. You block it, it's fine. And then in the amped-up system, blocking it actually kind of helps you but no it, no it mm. well way. it decreases activity right. it decreases so, activity so it, yeah. yeah okay sorry go ahead oh no, no no so if you think about um right um because it's a, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter mm. you're going to cause the cell to depolarize mm-hmm. and you get less depolarization mm-hmm. if you block the system because supposedly you aren't mm-hmm. getting as much of this recycling of neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. And this only occurs when you utilize the system to some level, to okay. some threshold. Okay. Because before we were yeah. saying that that high activity level is epilepsy, which is not like it's a yeah, maladaptive thing. <laughs> it so, is. But then suddenly like the system kicks in when you're in an epileptic seizure. So then most people have like this heightened system in that s- is is that what the prediction is? Um, not necessarily. Sorry. It was just it w- the in in the epileptic activity where you mm-hmm. have this where you have where you are putting more load on the recycling on the neurotransmitter mm-hmm. pool required mm-hmm. the recycling system. It's only it was only that was the first time that Hero saw I see that the glutamine glutamate cycle actually did matter did seem to have an effect. So electrophysiologically, this is uh-huh. one of the first times you see that this cycle is involved in any kind of transmission from but, cell to cell. But there are some non-epileptic right. there so, are events that are... That yeah, are, so okay. high so frequency and low frequency states So there are high. So what's an brain? example of a high right. frequency so state like that's the, normal? The, so like 2 hertz, you can ha- to 20 hertz, you can have a lot of different high frequency right. states. Okay. But what, it seems what, like okay. animals can be, um, from studies, like there are different... Band wavelengths that the brain can mm-hmm. go into, and some mm-hmm. are really high frequency for like states of vigilance mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. alert, awake behavior. I see, right. and those often require high frequency 
um, connections and communications between neurons. I see, and but those events might be affected. I see. So, but then previously, when we were studying this glutamate glutamine system, nobody was studying those. Even though they are normal high-frequency state, nobody was studying those frequencies. We were studying something that was more like an asleep state, for right, example. Right, right. So, it, so this frequency okay. dependence seemed to be key, or frequency slash high-activity dependence seemed to gotcha, be key. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being clear. able to see mm-hmm. um, the dependence. And so what this actually ties into both exactly what you were talking about, how is this relevant to a normal brain? So what we did, what the part I played into, mm-hmm. we actually did something really awesome. So we borrowed recordings or obtained the Buzaki lab mm-hmm. did um, recordings, in vivo recordings of a mm-hmm. wake behaving animal mm-hmm. um, who was freely moving mm-hmm. on a ball. And we got a hold of those recordings and made stimulus files with that same frequency. Mm-hmm. And you can see high frequency states when the animal's freely moving on the ball and mm-hmm. low frequency states when it's not moving as much. Mm-hmm. And then played those and saw if there was a dependence, if you could see that same glutamate, glutamate glutamine cycle dependence with the high frequency and low frequency. So basically you got frequency states that are perfectly mm-hmm. normal across a right. range of behaviors from... Yeah. From recordings that people did in living animals. From the same cells we were, from same type the same cells cell. that were activating the cells that we were activating. I see. So it's mimicking the input that they but were recording. But moving it to a different system, which is your system, which is like slice. a brain slice. Yes. Which has been taken out of a living animal. Normally people right. don't test higher frequencies in these right. brain slices. You can't really um, have the... Ro- mouse run on a ball run when it's slice. when it's the <laughs> <legs>. <laughs> yeah, so when we it's mimic removed. the environment when their brain is whole which before and nobody tried exactly i see and uh then we also saw in low frequency states you did not see this um glutamine glutamate synthesis so mm-hmm. glutamate glutamine pathway mm-hmm. involved so if you blocked it you mm-hmm. didn't really see the depression mm-hmm. and if you added glutamine back in the presence of blockers so mm-hmm. then kind of making sure that your blocking was only affecting the glutamate glutamine mm-hmm. cycle um you saw it rescue only in the high frequency and mm-hmm. not in the low frequency mm-hmm. um natural like stimulus patterns mm-hmm. and that was really really cool really interesting. yeah that is really that is very yeah. cool so so in a living animal can we also block the glutamate glutamine system too? i wouldn't suggest it <laughs> <laughs> There might be some bad things happening. So yeah, but it, it, <laughs> interestingly, aside from the the basic science of this, and mm-hmm. you know, th- this being one of the first times we can actually we've actually been able to clear up one of the mysteries is this disconnect between the biophysical evidence and the electrophysiological evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, was aside from just that basic finding, mm-hmm. is was the state dependence on these frequencies, mm-hmm. right? The dependence mm-hmm. on the frequencies. You see it occur, but it is frequency dependent and mm-hmm. it is relevant towards frequencies that occur in awake behaving animals. Mm-hmm. But most electrophysiology or a lot of electrophysiologists don't have physiological levels of glutamine in their uh, bath solution, in their preparation. So, so yeah. what do you mean by this? So a lot, so Basically, you have this slice that's in... Right, and so you have to make this artificial mm-hmm. uh, cerebral, fino- cerebral spinal fluid, which mm-hmm. is fluid in your brain, mm-hmm. and you make it up as you imagine, as, you know, what's been quantified for average brain fluid concentrations of different ions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we're putting it in a little chamber. Proteins, and you put it in a little chamber, and so you're trying to mimic the environment inside the brain as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of people don't include glutamine concentrations in mimicking brain solution often it's it's much lower about 10 to 100 fold lower than what it's in the brain and so Mm -hmm. it makes you question what we're one what what are we missing by not Mm -hmm. including that 
I see. And our solution well, is because most people's solutions just salt, right? Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's right. Salts yeah. and sugars, basically. And you and, and and the problem is, is that you would say, okay, well, all the glutamate and glutamines in the brain, and that should mm. be enough. But mm. because we're perfusing the solution across the slice, mm -hmm. whatever is being provided by the brain into the extra being solution can out. constantly be washed out. I see. So, so you imagine that over time, then slices yeah. would just lose the ability to be excited. Right. right. At, at That's you a would imagine at some rate, but right, the conflict was that. We don't, really we don't really see know. that happen yeah. at a time scale we would think, right? right? Mm -hmm. So we can, in our prep, we usually only keep slices in the chamber for about an hour, and then things start mm -hmm. to get a little mm -hmm. messy. Well, so well, <laughs> well, if it's so awful, though, what's the advantage of taking the brain out of the animal and using that for experiments? Oh, conversely, great. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, we need some more whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a common theme in neuroscience: is that you want to take. A particular, you, if you want to learn about a particular protein or if you want to learn about a particular mm -hmm. region, you want to isolate it from other factors, right? And mm -hmm. really study that in its simplest form. Mm -hmm. And so SLICE allows us to isolate, right, maybe a particular network or a particular system and its components into one area. And also technologically, there are things we can do in SICE that are much more difficult to do in vivo. In so for example, in recording the brain. single synapses, could you do that in the intact brain? Oh, yes. Mm. But it's very, very hard. I see. I see. <laughs> but I mean, right, that. looking at the effect of drugs on these slices mm -hmm. is much more accessible than trying to perfuse it through the brain and watching that change. So it sounds like it's always a balance between getting something that's as much like in the living animal right. as possible and, and not making your life and not making your life miserable. Well, and, and also <laughs> being being able to isolate. Yeah. Right. Certain. Right. So if if you want to know if right, this is what we do with. This is something we do commonly with um, receptors, mm -hmm. with um, neurotransmitter receptors. Is we'll mm -hmm. take them, we'll express them in some heterologous system, like mm -hmm. a hex cell or something, mm -hmm. where those receptors aren't native. So not a neuron. Right. Basically. And then we'll see if whatever, like if drug specificity if that drug does the same thing to mm -hmm. that other cell that doesn't have anything all those other things neurons mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. and if it does then we presume it or for example the experiment you were talking about in the jackson lab like with yeah. manipulating those different proteins could oh, you have done yeah. that in a living animal um it would have been really hard right? no yeah because yeah. <laughs> also when you manipulate things genetically mm -hmm. in living animals there's so many compensatory changes mm -hmm. over so much time right, that we don't record over yeah time, so and so those experiments say. actually where those experiments I did were com confirming findings from mm -hmm. heterologous cells. They were PC12 cells, actually, mm -hmm. um, which are chromaffin cells. Mm -hmm. And they had expressed um, the they had expressed mm -hmm. neuron channels. They also have vesicles that are released with the same type of proteins. Mm -hmm. And so they like made kidney these cells mutation exactly I in see. these cells. And then... Uh, saw the same findings I did, but uh -huh. to see if it was relevant within a neuron, mm. I did the same thing in yeah. actually neuronal cultures, which yeah. is different than It's slices. not even a slice, right? Those yeah. are just like single just neurons. They're cells that you, out. So it seems like your um, study was a huge advancement in the understanding of astrocytic roles in the brain. Yeah, it, um, well, our, our study. <laughs> <laughs> your own study. study. <laughs> I'm trying to flatter yeah, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do you know, like... So I've read uh, some literature that it seems like more and more there's this role of astrocytes and, and other glial cells. Astrocytes are a form of glial cells, and there seems like there's other roles for glial cells in inflammatory diseases in the brain. And the studies have been, like, indicating that epilepsy might be a neuroinflammatory disease. Do you know anything about this, like, the, um, the studies, or have you, uh, like... I haven't... What are, what are your I, I haven't 
dove into these studies myself. Like I haven't performed them myself. Yes, I've heard. I mean, astrocytes, astrocytes specifically are one thing, but right, glial cells encompass many different types of cells. And so you definitely have this huge relationship between more neuro cells that are thought to be more like immunology Mm -hmm. type cells um, that are glial type cells involved. Yeah. I mean, and and not just epilepsy, stroke, so many diseases that it seems like you, anytime you see brain damage, you see this huge reaction by these glial cells Mm -hmm. and less of a reaction by the neurons. And most of the time neurons will die Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what's left there in the space predominating and changing dramatically are these glial cells. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that with not just as far as basic synaptic transmission and their role in how the brain processes information, but particularly there's a huge highlight and there's been a lot of work done by many other labs, um, especially right here, Ben Barris lab and Mm -hmm. others on the role of glial cells in any type of brain damage or any type of disease in which brain function is altered. Sure. So Zoya, that's really super interesting. Um, Something that I think really sets you apart from other graduates is that you had a child in the middle of your graduate career. Mm-hmm. Um, have a child. I have, have a child. Well, you gave birth to a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, and he's really adorable. He's so say. Thanks, I think so. He was in, um, to the audience, he was in lab the other day eating blueberries and watching television. And I just like, <laughs> had to stop what I was doing. <laughs> Did the whole lab he knows. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just wondering if you, I don't know, you totally don't have to, but if you want to talk about the no, experience yeah, sure. with us. Um, what would you like to know? So, so when just, did you have your kid? Oh, um, so I was actually pregnant during my qualifying exam. Oh my gosh. So yeah. that's like your second year of graduate school. And, and keep in yes. mind, if the, for those of you not in graduate school, this can take five to six years. You're in your <laughs> second year. I was in my second year of graduate <laughs> school. I was pregnant when I was preparing. And when I, I think I was like seven months when I, when I gave my qualifying exam. Um, and then, so that's my second year. And so I had him right at the middle of my third year you passed your calls I passed my calls it was it was hilarious because I, I was huge and <laughs> <laughs> I was standing up there I wanted to do it right you know standing up there and I was like giving my presentation and Paul Buckmaster is a brilliant um epilepsy neuroscientist and also on my committee mm-hmm. and at one point uh Levi was kicking and my feet were getting super swollen I was saying this, this qualifying exam can take hours and um I was like, oh, because I felt a kick. And he's like, Zoya, did you need to sit down? You should sit down. Are you okay? And I was like, I'm not going to give birth on the floor right here. Like, okay. <laughs> but I will sit down. That would have been epic. <laughs> that yeah, would have been epic. I know. Thank God it didn't happen. Like, did I pass? Did I pass? No, um, I did pass. It was, mm-hmm. it was wonderful. It was actually a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really great to have that done right before I went on maternity leave. <laughs> and so I took maternity leave. And, uh, so I think it took up a lot of time in my third year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that along with having Levi there, it just speaks to something that's really imp- like, it's a high priority. My family, like a family life and my home life is a really high priority for mm-hmm. me. And it's been like that from the time I started graduate school. So mm-hmm. I came, you know, with Rob, my partner mm-hmm. and, um, 
my number one priority is well before he was my family and now him and Levi are my family Mm -hmm. and my number two priority is my graduate career and then Mm -hmm. everything else is under that you know and I can juggle those but as long Mm -hmm. as I kept those two things in sight it kind of made it easier to juggle everything else and how does it make it easier just (laughs) (laughs) because I can bear a hand in my life and it's just like me (laughs) (laughs) well what's great is that both of those things require a lot of time and a lot of attention and I love them both so much like of course my number one I love most and more Mm -hmm. but I love doing research I love doing what I do and um the hardest part is not being able to spend all the time with both of them Mm -hmm. like not having to but not being able to like I love Mm -hmm. doing both of them so much so um when I had Levi in my sec- in my third year, I took a couple of months off for maternity leave. This is actually a really crazy story. Mm-hmm. So that was a crazy, crazy year for me because mm-hmm. right after I had um, Levi, Rob's mom um, had her second battle with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he was about two months old and, you know, family's first. So... Mm-hmm he really felt like he needed to be there by her side because she ended up having to get a mastectomy. This is mm-hmm. super dark, sorry. <laughs> but so... Where, where's Rob from? Um, we're both actually from Texas. I see. All of our family and what friends are from there, San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but we, you know, we have a huge support system there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so his mom was there. So we actually, when we found out the news, we went there to be with her throughout the whole process. So mm-hmm. we took a whole month and mm-hmm. uh, spent it there. And Levi was only two months, and that's kind of hard with a newborn. Mm-hmm. But also, right during that, we live where Rob works because he's a maintenance supervisor at, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for an apartment company. Mm-hmm. And so he lives on site, and mm-hmm. the building with, that we lived at where he was working, the company he works for sold that building, which meant that they had to relocate him somewhere else. So when Levi was so a that's month... Here. That's here. This is in San Francisco? It was, yeah, I was in San Francisco. Oh, okay. So within a month, when Levi was a month, we had to move uh-huh. all of our stuff. Oh my and God. then from there, wow. we had to pack for an entire month and a half trip oh back to Texas for Rob's mom's uh-huh. And was Levi an angel or was this like... Um, <laughs> he was so little, so it was actually great. He, he was a really good baby. He slept a lot. He was a great baby. And they're super young like that. All you do is sit there and... Hold them and feed them and look I at see. them with admiration. <laughs> belief on how you can like love something so much when all it does is sleep and look at you sometimes. <laughs> that's um, how I, feel about I had a blast. <laughs> that that sounds um, like a crazy. It was crazy. kind of a blessing because we were around family for yeah, that time too. Yeah. So there, it was such a distraction from her. This is actually Rob's mom's first grandchild, I see. and so she was just consumed. And you know, yeah. thankfully, modern medicine, the surgery, she's yeah. in remission and she's great and healthy yeah. and happy. Yeah. A couple months after that, Levi was uh, diagnosed with something called um, metopic craniosynostenosis. So okay. usually babies have Diseases this, are so hard. this anyway, babies. plate that form. You know, there's different plates in um, a baby's head skull the that skull, right, that's, fuse it's together, and there was mm-hmm. one in the front that fuses a little bit after they're born, and his fused early. So oh. if it's a bad thing because if your plates fuse too early, mm-hmm. then it can restrict brain growth because your skull mm-hmm. was smaller. Mm-hmm. So they end up having to go in and cut it back open mm-hmm. and pull it apart so his brain would have proper room to grow. Oh, gosh. And so that's a huge, you oh know, it's neurosurgery. Yeah. And so then that happened when he was five months. So my entire third year was full of like hospitals and oh these crazy God. things happening wow. and moving. We moved 
two times that year. Oh my god, um, very, very stressful. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. But it, somehow it was one of my most productive years. It's really? you're probably just on edge. You probably didn't sleep. Do you no, no. Sleeping? I think that I, as terrible and dark as these things seem, yeah, things like major life events like this make you really appreciate what's most important in life uh-huh. and focus on being grateful for so much and so many yeah. things. Like I was grateful for life. I was grateful for the opportunities I that see. I had in graduate school mm-hmm. to be able to do what I was doing. And I was just grateful for everything and wanted to take full advantage of everything. And so I think mm-hmm. in some way it inspired me instead of doing the opposite and making me shut down. Sure. And so in between being at those hospitals yeah. and breakdowns and all yeah. of that, when I was in lab, I just, I loved being there. Mm-hmm. And then when things in lab didn't go well, it, mm-hmm. it didn't, it didn't. Gave you some perspective. It yeah, didn't seem like a big deal. It didn't deal. seem like a big deal. And so yeah. I just kept moving forward. I didn't get bogged down with things. And yeah. um, I go to work and do things I love and can't believe where I am. And mm-hmm. then I go home and look around and I can't believe I have everything like the, it, to me, what's important mm-hmm. in life to me. I can't believe like, I, I feel like I have it all that sounds kind of that's a that's a good uh realization that you had though heartening (laughs) i feel i feel heartened (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so i think we should move on to the game yeah okay so Zoe, we're gonna play our favorite game on brains and bourbon it's called the game (laughs) <laughs> bring it on and so is there what, another name or is it just no the game? it's called the game it's called the that's game. the uh-huh. best name that we could come up you, with there's another game at stanford have you ever heard of this uh is it called the game it's called the game also. Oh, well ours is probably better oh, okay uh, i don't know i'll cut that <laughs> i probably shouldn't say that you're gonna have some hardcore uh, stanford kids yeah. get pretty mad but that's okay um i'm a grad student now i can say whatever yeah I exactly want. so <laughs> so this game is uh so we're gonna have three rounds okay and in each round, we'll have three options, and those options are uh, three titles from. There's a series wow, of, th- you really of like threes. Three, yeah. Don't you? Well, it's, I don't know. It's common. Um, there'll be three titles uh-huh. um, of articles. One will be real, and two will be fake. And actually, this game is like informally called "Not My Field," but it's called the game. Okay. Um, ah, see, I knew. And <laughs> so it's, it's your job to pick out the correct article, like the actual uh-huh, real uh-huh. one, uh-huh. Okay. and not the incorrect ones. Um, so we're going to start, um, I guess I'll start with the first one. Yeah. The first, uh, main subject is animal behavior. Okay. And so I'll start with, uh, 1A. So 1A, effects of waste plastic bags on fish foraging and mating. Is it 1B, effects of cocaine on honeybee dance behavior? Or is it C, what's up doc, rabbit olfactory sensitivity to common garden vegetables? Oh, um, I feel like one, 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 A and B are totally things. So it's they all sound legit. Yeah, that's that's why it's fun. This game because oh, we get to okay. think of like really cool titles to make. <laughs> um, or the internet gets to think of them. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna go with B. Is that your final answer? The cocaine. Cocaine. All right, let me, let me read you some sentences from the abstract of the okay, correct okay, title. Okay. The role of cocaine as an addictive Woo! drug of abuse is, in human society is We're hard to reconcile winner. with its ecological role as a natural insecticide and plant protective compound. Um, I'm going to skip some lines. There's a few lines I highlighted because they're really funny. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, here we show effects of cocaine on honeybees uh, that parallel human responses. <laughs> 
Treatment with a low dose of cocaine increased the likelihood and rate of bees dancing after foraging, but did not otherwise increase locomotor activity. This is consistent with cocaine causing forager bees to overestimate the value of the floral re uh, resources they collected. Um, and then they go on to say that uh, because the neurochemical systems targeted by cocaine also modulate reward processing, this reinforcing properties of cocaine occur as a quote-unquote side effect. <laughs> so I live in San Francisco where mm -hmm. there's a lot of cocaine and not I don't do it but I also have gone to honeybee farms in San uh -huh. Francisco and I feel like they dance a lot so maybe they're on cocaine. <laughs> maybe um okay the next the theme is strange correlations okay a are full or empty beer bottles sturdier and does their fracture threshold suffice to break the human skull um new insights into shark aggression Higher incidence of non-fatal attacks on blondes versus brunettes. That would be hilarious. <laughs> I didn't even know sharks could, like, detect color. Right? Most yeah. animals can, actually. Most animals can? Really? Well, a lot of animals can. Do they have right? sex differences between male sharks and female sharks? Oh, that's a good question. I, I guess it would know. have to be I don't know article. that answer. We'll see. I don't we'll know see. that answer. I don't know. But yeah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> C, just to stay on track. Mm -hmm. Increased fear of death associated with consumption of papaya fruit. So I know B is the shark, C is the papaya, and what wait, what was A? Are full or empty beer bottles? Oh right, 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 right. Um, I'm so less interested in A, although it could probably be true. Um, Hiding the answers. Dude, it would just be so cool if B was true. I want to say B again. B again? Final answer. Oh no, we'll go C. C? Yeah. You want to change it? You know you should never change. <laughs> always gives you B the wrong or C. answer. Um, I feel bad because now I feel like you're like giving me a second chance. I chose the wrong Actually, one. I give you a third chance. Okay, exactly. A th okay, I'll go with my original. B. Yeah. Yeah. B. Okay. Here we are from the abstract. Okay. Beer bottles are often used oh, in physical geez. disputes. If the bottles break, they may give rise to sharp trauma, really. However, if the bottles remain intact, they may cause blunt injuries. <laughs> Beer bottles may therefore fracture the human skull and therefore serve as a dangerous instrument in physical disputes. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. All right. So this, this last uh, subtopic is called plain dumb. Okay. So these are just plain dumb articles. <laughs> so is it 3A... Blood alcohol concentration elevates significantly faster by beer consumption through straws. Is it 3B, optimizing the sensory characteristics and acceptance of canned cat food, use of a human taste panel? Or is it 3C, immune responses to various cer cereal grains? Can Lucky Charms induce neuronal degeneration? <laughs> I love Lucky Charms. They're really good. I, I like do you yeah. always eat the cereal first and then you have the marshmallow? Oh, yeah, it. of oh, course. Yeah. And it's like Duh. it's marshmallow and sugary milk combined. It's oh, like the yeah. best thing in the world. <laughs> mm, it's tough. Yeah, this is a hard one. Because they're, they're all dumb. They're all really they're dumb. All, I, I, I would have to, again, I'm going to say it would have to be B or C. Um, because I don't, I don't like the beer bottles and I also She's don't looking like at the, my the straw thing. I don't know what the straw thing is. Right. Mm. I think the straw thing is just dumb. Like, I've drank beer out of a straw, and I definitely do not get drunk faster. Um, <laughs> She's tested this. Like, yeah. like yeah, a true scientist. So it could be plain dumb because that's mm. wrong. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then it would be B or C. We'll go with B because I don't want C to be true. I like Lucky Charms. <laughs> All right, so first sentence from the abstract. 
<clears throat> a methodology based on descriptive analysis techniques used in the evaluation of human food has been successfully oh. refined to allow for a human taste panel to profile the flavor and texture of a range of cat food products. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It. Right? Yeah. It's a little, I was like, oh, two um, Let me just read a few, a few snippets. Dude. 18 flavor attributes and four texture dimensions. Dimensions. You have to read the 18 flavor attributes. Oh, do you want These are them? amazing. So, well, some of them I don't want to try to pronounce because I'm oh, okay. messing with. But sweet, sour acid, tuna, herbal, spicy, soy, salty cereal, caramel, chicken, methionine, vegetable, Ophali. Is that how you say Ophali or Ophali? Like, that's like poo, right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Meaty, I burnt fla- meaty burnt flavor. Prawn, as in like shrimp. Yeah. Rancid and bitter. Prawn. Uh, four textures were hardness, chewiness, grittiness, and viscosity. Um, that's so random. We're generated, cr- were generated to describe the sensations elicited by 13 commercial pet food supply, uh, samples. And this sentence, it is now necessary to determine the usefulness and limitations of sensory data gathered from human panels in describing predicted food acceptance and preferences, behaviors in cats. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's like, funny. really? That's you funny. didn't think of that before. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. So oh, it was a lot of fun. Me. Yeah. Um, and thank you all for listening. Brains of Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Ada Yee and uh, myself, Jordan Sorokin. You can find all of our episodes of Brain, Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever want to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. <laughs>